Well, hello again. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. That'll be on page 721 of the Pew Bibles. I know reading all of Revelation 13 for a mid-service scripture reading seemed a bit strange. Hopefully, that will all become clear momentarily. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officers to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of the gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up? and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, 
nor was the hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Shadrach said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. In the late 1930s, in the heyday of Stalin adulation in the Soviet Union, Stalin's name was mentioned in a provincial meeting. This triggered a standing ovation and a standing dilemma. For no one dared to be the first to sit down. Long, drawn-out pause. Finally, an elderly man who just could not stand any longer took his seat. He was marked and the next day arrested. He had failed to worship the idol long enough. So writes Dale Ralph Davis. Let me give you a more modern example of the same thing. Perhaps you read about this. It started last year, the year before. Kim Jong-un began removing the pictures of his father and grandfather in North Korea. Uh, See, 70 years ago, when his grandfather set up the totalitarian communist regime, uh, the idea was that the family was divine. They they were the ones to be worshipped. And so there's pictures of grandfather and father and statutes all over the place. Well, a year or two ago, Kim said, nah, we're not going to do that anymore. Now it's about me. So he had all the pictures changed, and he declared Kim Jong-unism. Kim changing from a cult of personality of the family to his own personality cult. So now his his picture is painted everywhere, and his statues are all over the place. One man who defected to South Korea explained that in North Korea, even the most mundane of items or positive happenings are attributed to the Kim family. He wrote, the teachers would say, do you know where milk came from? It came from dear leader because of his love and consideration. We are drinking milk today. Of course, many are starving to death in that country, so I don't know how they get around that one. Commenting on these realities, Davis writes this, rulers, especially autocrats, they seem to be prone to dabble in religion. And the examples of state-ordered worship is why we read from Revelation 13. It's a rather fearsome chapter with dragons and beasts and and all sorts of other things, but did you catch that the beasts serve two purposes? One uses religion to get people to worship something other than God. The other beast uses government to get people to worship something other than God. Our chapter this morning, though, shows us is that the beast of Revelation 13 is not primarily a future thing. Oh, now, many Christians do believe that there will be a final personification of the beast. Our chapter shows us this morning that there have been beasts all the way back. There have always been governments and leaders who've demanded total allegiance to the state. Nebuchadnezzar is just one in a long line of those who utter blasphemies against God. Kim Jong-unism does not allow Christianity in its kingdom because that is a threat of another kind of worship. Well, between Revelation 13 and Kim Jong-un, our chapter for this morning shows us 
very much what John wrote in his letter. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. There have always been Antichrists, and there will be until the Lord takes the kingdoms of this world and makes them the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. So this morning, that's why the sermon is titled, The Beast and the Blazing Furnace. And we will walk through this text using four points this morning. I know I'm a Baptist pastor, but sometimes we can do four points. The image, the jealousy, the courage, and the rescue. One more time, listen again to verses 1 through 7 of Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I read that list intentionally with that kind of playfulness because in the original, for the first audience, this is satire. This is their Babylon Bee or their onion. This is a chapter of mockery. Now make no mistake, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego living through it at that moment, this was a deadly serious situation for them. But for the first readers, they would have known this story. Just as many of you, if you've grown up at all in Christian circles, know this story quite well. And so this is intentionally written so as to be a jab, to be a poke in the side, to be a mocking of the gods. Just think of the irony layered over and over again. Neb made and set up the image and makes people worship the image that he made and set up. It's just showing how obscenely ridiculous this whole thing is. It's meant to remind us of Psalm 2 which tells us that the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers of the earth band together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his Messiah. God's response to this banding together, it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them and says, no, I have installed my king on Zion. What impudence, what childish foolishness that humans believe they can take some of the worship that only God is worthy of. That's the reason for the repetition. It is a mockery. It's this idea that Nebuchadnezzar is saying, if I say it enough, maybe they'll buy it. We could get into the history of Hitler and his use of propaganda and how it was just the fleecing the people with the pictures and images was one of the ways he tried to stir up their affections to follow him. That's what's going on here. And God laughs. Even the dimensions are absurd. 90 feet tall and 9 foot of a base. How do you keep something like that in the ancient world standing up? It's all mockery. We're not told what the image is of, but we are told that it's all of gold. Which, for those who've just been through chapter 2, remembers, hey, wait a minute. King Neb was the 
head of gold. And he was told that he will be replaced with silver and bronze and steel. So this is Nebuchadnezzar leaving his mark. This is his legacy. He wants to make sure that after his head and kingdom of gold are gone, there is a gold marker there left to be worshipped. That's what's going on. Now elsewhere in the book, he threatens people with being cut up into pieces. He's actually going to revert to that at the end of the chapter. But here, probably because he had invested so much time in this massive furnace uh, for his building project, both of this ridiculous image, but then also, Lord willing, next week we'll learn of his huge expansion that he did in Babylon, he decides he'd rather have them thrown into the furnace. And so, as with the earth dwellers in Revelation 13, who worshipped the beast, when the music played, they all bowed down. When the Pied Piper pipes, they all followed along. Now, as modern folk living in an age which tends to be anti-supernatural, we tend to think it is just ridiculous that anyone would worship a statue. I mean, it just seems so silly, does it not? I mean, maybe we'd chalk this up to just, ah, they, this was so long ago, they just, they were ignorant. In North Korea, they still worship the Kim family. Oh, maybe that's just because they're not as advanced. No, 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 friends, don't deceive ourselves. While modern states do not build things for people to bow down to, make no mistake, they do seek to direct our worship. They just do so in far more subtle and subversive ways. Let me show you a very subversive and subtle way that is very popular in recent years. A recent news report explained that in the past four years since it was made legal, Americans have spent $125 billion on sports betting. In four years. The, the Associated Press article explains that the states love it and help with the advertising. One state takes as much as 51% of the take for taxes. All right, back up a little more. In 1964, did you know that lotteries, lottos, were illegal in every state? Uh, they became legal. Now, on average, Americans spend $80 billion a year on the lotto, and nearly half of Americans play the lotto. In 2022 alone, governments collected $27 billion in taxes for the lotto. See, friends, as the old saying goes for any kind of gambling, the house always wins. And in this case, the state is the house. Notice the state isn't building an image for you to bow down to. Well, what they're doing is they're building a picture of a pipe dream, of a life with lavish houses and cars and vacations or no more working. That's why the advertisements for the lotto and sports gambling are so pernicious and grotesque. Trying to sell an idea that, oh, just play the lotto. Uh, you get into the math. It was fascinating. The article I read said, for the lotto to work, $1.51 of every $2 spent has to go away. He's like, that's the dumbest investment you can imagine. See, we have our idols that our governments propagate and put up and advertise. Oh, both political parties are doing the same thing, vying for people's affections. They seek to build worshipers. They're looking for people to bow down before the elephant or the donkey. Make no mistake, political parties are vicious, heartless idols playing the tunes for the worshipers to follow along. They promise great things if you'll just vote for me. Oh, friends, there's a little bit of beast in every government. But let's go a little further. If we're even remotely honest with ourselves, we don't need the government's help to worship idols. No, we are constantly looking to build our lives and our hopes on all sorts of things. 
John Calvin was exactly right when he said the human heart is an idle factory, always looking for something to bring us fulfillment. Perhaps the best book on this topic is Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. I would say it's a must-read. Encourage you, get a copy of it. Read it with someone at a different age in life. So seniors, grab a junior or a senior in training and read Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods together. It is superb. In that book, he explains that anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what you should only give to God, that is an idol. For some, it might be material prosperity or comfort. For others, it's love and relationships, security. For some, it's power or glory or success. The list can go on. See, for those who bow down before Nebuchadnezzar's ridiculous image, at the very least, they just treasured their lives so much that they were willing to play along and follow the Pied Piper. But before we mock, what are the situations in our lives that lead us to behave in ways which are clearly unchristian? I mean, we all sin. And friends, every time we sin, it is because in that moment, we cherish something else more than God. Let's talk about something every Christian is guilty of. Every Christian has gossiped, guaranteed. The dictionary.com definition is as simple as this. It is talking idly about another person. And of course, there can be a pernicious element as well. Every Christian I know knows that gossip is not something the Bible's vague on. It's not like there's a maybe on it. It's crystal clear. In 1 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says slanderers, a kind of gossip, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's not in the gray zone. This is clear. You don't do this. So why do we do it? Well, because in that moment, when we choose to gossip, there's something more important to us than God. And the insane thing is, we're so sinful that we actually try to justify it, right? Oh, you should pray for so-and-so. Really? Is that what you're saying? Oh, did you hear so-and-so? Now, of course, there's a Christian way to walk these things out, but then there's the gossipy way. And in that moment, what we're really saying is it's more important for this person to think this about me, or it's more important for me to look like I'm in the know, or whatever, than it is to honor God, who says that this is wicked. See, there's a myriad of reasons why we sin, but they all come back to in that moment, there's something that's just a little bit more precious to us than Jesus. We could list them on and on. But that's what's going on at the heart level underneath our sin. And Keller's book does a brilliant job of unpacking that for you. Well, we'll come back to consider how it is that this question, this chapter is posing for us is this, is worshiping God alone worth dying for? That's what this chapter is asking us. The, The whole chapter is, is worshiping God alone worth dying for? We'll see that in the third point, but for our second point, we're going to come to the jealousy. Look at verses 8 through 12. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down to worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. 
There's an unfortunate translation decision in the NIV. It it says the astrologers. Uh, I think it's better. It's the literal word is Chaldeans, and I think the ESV is better there. Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Verse 12 then says, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You get the idea? The Chaldeans are jealous. Why should these Jews have been promoted over us? We're the locals. We're the Chaldeans. They aren't committed to you, King Neb. Look, they don't worship. They don't follow the Pied Piper. King, you issued a decree, but there's some Jews in your kingdom who you made rulers, and they're not following along. You see how their accusation is bound up with jealousy? I used gossip in the first point because that's what the Chaldeans are doing here. But notice, in this situation, their slanderous accusations are true. They're using the truth in a slanderous way. They're using it as a weapon because of their jealousy. See, for these Chaldeans, their true object of worship then is their own advancement. It's, they want those positions. They want to be the ones in charge. So whether it's the promotion or status or whatever, that's for them the issue. For them, they're bowing down to the image just so that way they can advance, right? They show up at the opening ceremony. They smile and nod and make sure they're seen by Neb. Their obedience and worship is a means of getting to their ends. And friends, here's the thing. Whenever religion has a strong place in society, this is the kind of thing that will be at play. At least part of the reason why Constantine's Edict of Milan, which permanently uh, gave forward the toleration of Christianity, part of the reason he did it was it was advantageous for him. Over and over again, the story could be told of people using religion as a means for some other personal goal or advancement. And there are still some advantages to being religious in America, which is why politicians still seek to play that card when they think it'll buy them some some leverage or, or some capital. Biden recently sought to get a pass from the Pope regarding his position on abortion. And Trump stood in front of a liberal church with a Bible, upside down for part of it, I believe, because they're playing to the crowd. Both parties seek to use religion as a tool, just like these Chaldeans. But there's one specific element of their jealousy which is worth pushing in on. Did you catch how many times they pressed in on the fact, these Jews? Well, perhaps they were racist. Perhaps they were anti-Semitic. Or perhaps they were using ethnicity as another tool, along with worship, to get to their own advantage. We don't know for sure. We don't know whether they really hated Jews or whether it just that was an element that played into this whole thing. What we do know is this, is that sinners will always use every means available to them to achieve their ends. Of course, we are very familiar with America's past, slavery and Jim Crow, and there are countless stories which should rightly haunt us. Uh, one story is recalled in a book called How the Irish Became White. I don't recommend the book but it tells a fascinating story. It tells about how the first Irish immigrants who came to America, they were the lowest people possible on the totem pole. Uh, Slave owners would hire the Irish to do jobs they wouldn't let their slaves do because it was dangerous, and they'd rather just pay the Irish guy to go do it and die. What happened, though, in time, was that the Irish started to realize, well, if we stop identifying primarily as Irish, but we start identifying as white, then all of a sudden we have more cultural capital. 
Now, in the book, what he's trying to do is he's trying to make the argument that this is, you know, the, 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 the big pillar, massive structure of, of white supremacy and so forth and stuff. But I would just say is he doesn't have a category of sin. The bigger issue is whether maybe they were racist. They very well could have been. But they were using any port in the storm. That's what sin is like. Any port in the storm. And in that moment, what was advantageous for them was to highlight an ethnic difference so that way they could advance. That's precisely what the Chaldeans are doing here. They do not want to submit to Jewish provincial leaders. They want those jobs for them stores, for themselves. So as has been true down through history, the Chaldeans' desire for getting what they want means that they seek to highlight any difference they can. An ethnic difference was a very plain one. Again, whether or not their actions were specifically the result of ethnic hatred, it certainly resulted in a racial discrimination. Notice the connection there. Their actions may or may not have intended to be racist, but it had a racial element in the fruit. This is why sometimes this whole conversation is so challenging. Because people can be aiming at one thing and it can have a different result over here. That's why we have to have these conversations carefully, with wisdom. This is a messy business going back and rereading history of attributing motives. What we can do is acknowledge that sometimes the downstream effects certainly carry systemic injustices. Yeah, absolutely. For Christians, a couple things are very clear. That we must despise all such racism and ethnic hatred. That we have to love all people. They are created in the image of God. And that one day God will gather those from every tongue and tribe and nation before his throne. So when we hear of things like the racially motivated shooting in Buffalo, we must lament. We must mourn that that wickedness still exists. We must pray for the families and communities of those who have been killed and harmed. And while we must pray for earthly justice to be done in the sentencing, we also should pray for the perpetrator. That God's hand would not be so short as to save even one as wicked as that. An incredible example of this, which happened back in 2019, was seen by Brant Jean, brother of Botham Jean. Uh, Botham was shot and killed by a Dallas police officer. An 18-year-old Brant, his brother, in his victim impact statement, where he was supposed to be speaking about how much harm this had done to him by having his brother shot and killed, instead, he took the stand and asked for permission to hug the police officer who murdered his brother. And before he hugged her, he said, my main desire is not for her to go to jail, but for her to give her life to Christ. Friends, I'd say that the Christian path on all of these such issues is not simple. It doesn't simply side with one ideology or another. It is a path which abhors racism and evil and wickedness, and it prays for the salvation of even our enemy. So for Christians, we must pray for both the victims' families and their communities and for the perpetrators that they would repent and trust in God because vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. So let's press this discussion a little bit more practical, though. I don't think anybody in this room I have to convince that racism is a horrible, wicked evil. But what are other sins that we tolerate that equally make us subhuman? That's the way the Bible speaks about sin. It speaks of sin as making us less than human, less than what God made us for. 
And first and foremost, all sin is the de-godding of God. It is pulling him off his throne and taking our seat on his throne. So this is why I say we should each be examining ourselves before we come to the table in two weeks. Friends, what are those little sins that we're far more tolerant of in our lives? Hebrews 12, 14 through 17, the author gives us a stern warning not to presume upon our status as Christians just because we have trusted in Jesus. He writes this, make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Do you hear how sweeping that command is? Make every effort to live at peace with everyone. See to it that no one I'm to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. To, do, to fail to do so is to let a root of bitterness spring up. Friends, even our seemingly personal sins affect those around us. Our refusal to press on and fight for holiness harms the church. We see this in our text, do we not? The Chaldeans' jealousy led to the far greater sin of Nebuchadnezzar seeking to execute Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sin grows. It never stays little. It spreads like fire, like leaven, leavening the whole lump. Hear Hebrews 12, 15 again. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Each church member helps to have a certain level of responsibility for the others because we're to see to it that they don't fall short. You see, this is why our Baptist forebears were exactly right when they said the duty of each church member is to make every effort to grow in our own personal holiness. So members of Bethany, do you have other members in this church that you share your life with, confess sin to, that you seek help in pressing on towards holiness? Do you have a transparency with other people in this church and vice versa? Do they know what your idol structure is? Which, which things are going to trigger you or tempt you so that way you can confess to them and ask for them to walk with you? Friends, there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian in the Bible. There are only living, active members attached to the vine of Christ and to each other. Well, we've seen the image We've seen the jealousy. Now we come to the third point, the courage. Look at verses 13 through 23. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. 
The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. It's often asked, where's Daniel? We don't know. That's the end of that. Uh, We just don't know. Don't ask questions the Bible doesn't answer. There you go. Uh, All we know is that he's not mentioned, so we don't know one way or the other. But again, we note some irony in this story. Neb demanding that they bow down to something he made and set up. The ridiculous nature of the whole scene is repeated with all the musical instruments and all this, joining in this fiction, this imagined reality that this thing he built is worthy of worship. But this section forms the heart of the chapter, and particularly Neb's question, what God can rescue you from my hand? It just puts on display his arrogance and his ignorance. This is the same guy who just in chapter 2 had praised the God of heaven and the King of kings. Short memory. But the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is meant to contrast, to be a foil with the Chaldeans. Whereas the Chaldeans played their part for the Pied Piper and they served their ends for their advancement, these three flat out even to defend themselves. They just refuse. Instead, they say, in essence, this, uh, Neb, contrary to your boast that no God can deliver us from the flaming furnace, not only can he, but he will. And yet, if he doesn't, we're still not going to serve your gods. That's some chutzpah, right? Notice, the Chaldeans are so quick to bow before the image. Well, here, there's a little play on words in the original, and when they refuse, Neb's face changed, quite literally, the image of his face changed, because we become like that which we worship. Well, the story is justly famous, so we know the rescue is coming, but Shadrach and the boys didn't. They believe that they will be rescued, but they don't rest their hopes in it. Their hope is in God, regardless of what happens to their earthly lives. Because they're free from idolatry, they can face the beast and his furnace. That's the primary lesson for the first audience, then. Is that they know, because of the last chapter, three more kingdoms are going to come. There are more beasts and more furnaces on the way. God is not going to remove them from these future trials. According to the last chapter, God decreed these kingdoms will most certainly come. Rather, God's call is for his people to live for him alone, regardless of what the earthly kings and kingdoms do. For us today, one of the clearest applications, though, is that this is one of those examples in the Bible where, for Christians, we must not obey the governing authorities. We said in chapter 1 that God's the one who rises and topples all kings, and Romans 13 is very clear. We are to submit to those leaders. God has given them a genuine authority that we are to submit to. But here... There's an example of when God's people have to draw the line and say we can't. Now we said all such governments which demand worship are a form of the beast. And so a Christian must never obey a command to worship anything other than God, even to the point of death. We must not bow down before any other gods. Even if the beastly rulers rage around us like Neb, we must be those who know it's better to die than to bow Well, I said this is the heart of this passage. The fact that God is able to rescue his people for those who worship him alone. But notice that while God is able to rescue him, their hope is not in the rescue. It's in God who may or may not rescue them. 
We've seen this theme in Daniel already, and we'll see it again. We can summarize it with this question. Friends, is God enough? Is it God that you've truly been living for? Will you still live for him when everything else collapses around you? When all of your freedoms might be taken away? Will you still live for him when living for him means dying for him? Here's a stunning example of this from missionary John G. Patton. He served in the South Pacific Islands, formerly the New Hebrides, now Vanuatu. 19 years before he embarked on his missionary journey, the first two missionaries to the New Hebrides went off from the London Missionary Society. They landed in 1839. They were both killed and eaten by the local cannibals minutes after getting on shore. Of that day, Patton would later write, Thus were the new Hebrides baptized with the blood of the martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed those islands as his own. Forty-eight years later, in his autobiography, he would write of the over 140,000 cannibals who had been converted in the less than five decades where he served as a missionary, him and others. But as with Shadrach and the boys, when those 19 years those first 19 years when he went to the missionary board, he didn't know whether or not he was going to be eaten like the guys who went 19 years before him. If I die for God, I'll die. So he presented his case to the London Missionary Society. And a man named Mr. Dixon, an older man, exploded. They are cannibals. You will be eaten by cannibals. Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. Again, that's some chutzpah, friends. Well, Just a snippet of his incredible story. Three months landing on the island, his first son was born. A month later, his wife died. A week after her, the son followed her into the grave, which he dug by hand next to his little house. And over the next few years, four years, the fever which killed his wife, he contracted it some 14 times. He would be followed around the island by locals carrying muskets, oftentimes holding the musket Finger on the trigger, and he tells it, is that only by God's miraculous grace did they not pull the trigger. For four years, he did that, until he was finally forced off of the island. Utterly seeming to be a failure, other than the couple dozen converts he had had, and yet he went back and had an incredibly fruitful ministry. How did Patton live so courageously? I I think we're just too soft here in the West. It just blows our minds. Well, he explains, here's how he lived the way that he did. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how an attack might be made. And yet with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. In other words, friends, the way we prepare to live in that type of world is to be people growing in prayer pressing in to holding and clinging to Jesus. I encourage you practically, friends, come to prayer. My hope is that in years, Sunday evening from 6 to 7 is the second most important thing we do as a church. We gather and pray because only God can save. 
Only God can change hearts, and only God will bring revival. Well, this same emphasis, though, of, of living for God even to the point of death is found in and throughout the book of Revelation. To the church of Smyrna, Jesus would say in Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus does not promise an earthly deliverance. He promises an eternal life to come. Be faithful to death. I'll give you the crown of life. The theme comes up later in the book in Revelation 12, 11, where it speaks that the way God's people triumph over the dragon and the beasts is by the blood of the lamb, what he objectively accomplished on the cross, dying for the sins of his people by the word of their testimony, testifying to his work that his work is enough. And then third, because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Brothers and sisters, our calling is to follow the lamb wherever he leads, even if that means to death. And we're to find strength to do so by seeing how our true citizenship is in heaven, held by the hand, once nailed to the tree, and now waving the scepter over the nations. Well, that brings us to our last point, the rescue, looking in at verses 24 through 30. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looked like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province. So apparently the furnace had a large hole up top, which they were pushed through, and another opening on the bottom. Again, it's quite large for men walking around inside of it. Note the bunch of little irony that this last section ties together for us. Those who obeyed Neb and bound them and walked them up to the furnace died by the furnace. Those who obeyed God lived in the furnace. And also notice that before being thrown in, it detailed their clothes. They had hats and turbans and all this stuff, this flammable stuff and didn't even smell like smoke. Neb then sees a fourth man who looks like the son of the gods. Later he calls him an angel. There's nothing in the text that forces us to think this is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ. Eh, maybe. The point is that God saves his people. Notice Neb was so confident that no God could save. But noting this, and also, oh, sorry, he, he was confident that no God could save them through his fire. He then sees this angelic deliverer as it is and praises this only God who can save. Also, notice the jealousy of the Chaldeans didn't quite work out because they get promoted yet again in the province of Babylon. There's one final intended irony. Nebuchadnezzar opened the chapter by decreeing they'd be thrown into the furnace, which no God can save them from, except for this God, 
So clearly the furnace throwing thing has failed, so he's going to go back to cutting people up and turning their houses into a pile of rubble again. Again, this is satire, rich with satire. Well, the final rescue scene raises the question, why didn't God just turn the fire off? That's the way the story goes in in Kings, right? When Elijah has his, his battle with the Baals, the prophet of Baal, he keeps mocking them. You're God sleeping? The fire hasn't turned on yet. You should, you should try again. Why didn't God do that? Why did he get, let them get thrown into the furnace and go through the furnace? Well, David Helm helpfully notes, in the Bible, fire is associated with a couple things, with both judgment and refinement. Malachi speaks of it being a refiner's fire. Uh, Peter picks this up, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, It should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Peter says, expect suffering. It's God's refining fire. Uh, Peter says, just don't suffer for being a jerk. You're going to suffer. Just don't let it be your fault. Don't be a murderer or even a meddler. Now, I've already noted in the series, but it's important to come back to American Christians have tended towards an escapist mentality But this passage and many, many others show that God's plan is to take us through the fire. In both Testaments, there's pictures of this. Think back to the Exodus with me. The first three plagues of the Exodus hit Israel. It wasn't until the fourth plague of the flies that God said, on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. God's wrath was poured out, but God kept his people from his wrath. He kept them through it because he's able to aim his wrath. He's got pretty good aim. Sometimes 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is referenced that God has not destined his people for wrath. And of course, that is true. But God kept Israel in the midst of Goshen while pouring out his wrath on Egypt. Uh, Moreover, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is speaking about the final wrath of God in judgment because the contrast is salvation. The picture in the Bible, friends, is that God's people are kept and refined through the fiery trials and tribulations of this life rather than being taken away from them. This is why John opens the book of Revelation in Revelation 1.9. John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John sees himself and the churches as experiencing both the tribulation and the kingdom, leading to growth in the patient endurance found in Jesus. So you see, friends, it is through the fiery trials that God prepares his people to worship him alone. And remember, this is not the first fiery trial these men had faced. Throughout the whole section, they're only referred to by what? Their pagan names that were given to them after they were taken from their homeland and after hearing the news that their city of Jerusalem had been crumbled. I think of the Psalm, I believe it's 132, who says, they asked us in Babylon to sing a song, but how can we sing when Jerusalem has been destroyed? So we hung up our lyres. These men had already suffered. That suffering had prepared them for this suffering. See, fire is a refining fire. But in the Bible, it's also a theme of judgment. And it actually, that starts all the way back in the garden. Do you remember? 
After Adam and Eve sinned and they were removed from the garden, what did God station at the entrance to the garden? Cherubim and a flaming sword. The only way back into God's presence was to pass through the flaming sword of judgment. Ever since then, the serpent has been seeking to lure us to worship anything other than God. Uh, the serpent even tempted Jesus in the wilderness, but Jesus responded in words just like these three. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Like the three Jewish men, Jesus refused to worship anything other than God. And yet, different than them, rather than only taking the fire of refinement, Jesus did take the sword of judgment, the fire of judgment. This is why the Puritan spoke of Jesus taking the hellishness of our sins, the fiery judgment, the flaming punishment that we deserved. So that now all those who repent and trust in him, all those who seek not to flee from the refiner's fire, but to walk through it, all those who walk that path in trust of Christ will grow in his grace. And even though they may be thrown in the fires of the earth's judgment, they will be spared the fire of God's judgment because God is the one who's able to rescue for eternity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your patience with us or that so often so many ways we fail that we are those with so many idols and so many other things that we trust in and worship in and yet we thank you that jesus took the flame of judgment for us so the flames that come at us and are thrown at us are flames of refinement how we thank you for that truth would you help us to walk into this week we pray for jesus sake amen